Good evening. Good to see everybody. Glad that you are here. I hope that what we uh, do this evening will prove beneficial to you. I'm going to do something a little bit different. Uh, I can watch the screen in the back, but I'm also going to watch my own screen. It's going to be the same thing. So if I look back and forth, it's not that I'm distracted. I'm just trying to keep up with where I am. Uh, The prophets are incredible uh, to study. I want to just say a few things about them before we get into uh, what we are calling the living message of Zephaniah. If you uh, read through Isaiah uh, to Malachi, that's 17 books of prophets. Those are 17 books of written prophecy. Uh, They're not 17 distinct prophets. Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah and Lamentations, so 16 prophets. Uh, But they are only part of a larger number of prophets. Many more prophets spoke, and they were only oral prophets. That is, they spoke and uh, nothing that we know of was written, certainly not uh, recorded uh, in the context of Scripture. And so there, there, prophecy is a unique part of Scripture. Uh, we know what the Old Testament law is about, Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, we understand what wisdom literature is, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and so forth. And we understand uh, books of history, uh, which uh, usually start with Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and in the Old Testament way of doing things, many, many years ago, the Old Testament, according to the Jews, they would refer to the books of history as the former prophets, and then refer to the major prophets, and then the book of the Twelve, the minor prophets. So they would count all the same things that we did, only they counted them slightly differently. The only thing I want to make a, 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 an emphasis on before we get into the heart of our study is uh, the message of the prophets is perpetually relevant. You might say, well, that's, that's kind of awkward. Uh, Isaiah, the first of the major prophets, lived three-quarters of a millennium prior to the time of Christ. Uh, that's 2,000 years plus three-quarters. That's 2,750 years. So how can something that was recorded uh, for a, a people in the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem 2,750 years ago be perpetually relevant? Well, I hope as we get into a little bit about what Zephaniah is about this evening, uh, you will see how the message of Zephaniah, uh, who was after uh, Isaiah from the standpoint of the time frame that he worked, is also relevant. I want us to understand, as we read through Luke chapter 24, twice Jesus, once to the two men en route to Emmaus, as they were walking along, unaware that Jesus was speaking to them, uh, they were surprised that Jesus, whom they thought was the hope of Israel, had died. Uh, They had heard reports of his resurrection, but they had not been convinced of that yet. Again, they did not know that they were speaking to Jesus, with Jesus, as they were walking. And uh, they were surprised that that Jesus, whom they thought was the hope of Israel, the Messiah, had died. And uh, Jesus spoke to them, and, and and he gave them a lesson from the Old Testament. And it would have been incredible to hear everything that he said. Don't you know that according to the scriptures, uh, the Messiah had to die. And he cited the books of the law uh, and the books of, of wisdom literature, the writings and the prophets. And then the second, uh, he did the same thing again when he appeared to the apostles, Luke 24, later in, in uh, that chapter, verse 44 and following. He brought up the same three-part breakdown of scripture according to the way the Hebrews were looked at. He, he looked at it from the standpoint of the law, from the standpoint of the writings and the standpoint of the prophets. And one of the things that he said there that's significant for us is that he said the prophets, twice in that passage, testify of me. Once to those two men traveling on the road to Emmaus, and then second to the apostles themselves. I want us to think of the prophets, not just the ones that we have recorded in Scripture, but those who spoke in the context of Scripture who didn't write anything, Nathan and and. Uh, Uh, and many other prophets that are like that, Micaiah, uh, those who are not uh, writing prophets, that they all had something to say about the Christ. We often refer to Isaiah as the Messianic prophet. Uh, That's probably because Isaiah is the first and the head uh, of the major prophets, and because Isaiah is 66 chapters long, and there are many, many Messianic prophets, uh, prophecies in the context of that book. But he's not the only one. If you read in Acts chapter 10, when uh, Paul began to proclaim the gospel to Cornelius and his household, he said all the prophets spoke about the coming of Jesus. Romans chapter 1, in the opening verses, Paul said, in effect, the same thing. All the prophets spoke in one way or another about the coming of Jesus. Some of them were very explicit. Some of them are cited numerous times in the context of the New Testament, but some of them are only alluded to. Now, what's interesting is Isaiah that we mentioned before, other than the book of Psalms, is the most frequently cited Old Testament text in the New Testament. 
So Psalms is going to be cited more in the New Testament than is any other Old Testament book, and that's going to be followed by Isaiah. There are no explicit citations from the book of Zephaniah in the New Testament. So you might say, well, how can it be a living message? How can a passage, a text, only three chapters long, how can it have perpetual relevance to us today? Well, that's what I want us to understand. And so let's give some consideration to that. I want us to understand that there's a sense in which Zephaniah still speaks to us today. You know the passage in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, it says that the things that were written aforetime, and that's referring to Old Testament scriptures, were written for our benefit, that we might have patience, that we might have comfort, that we might have hope, which of course comes from a God of comfort and hope, the immediately next verse. And so uh, there's a sense in which they still speak to us today. In the chapter before, as Paul's talking about Abraham, and he says some salient point about Abraham, he says, I want you to think about this. Why were these things written? They were not written for Abraham's benefit because these things were written long after Abraham lived. Abraham never got to see that. His point was they are written for our benefit today. And so Paul citing things about the life of Abraham says there are principles and there are practices that are inherent in the life and the teachings of Abraham that have continued application to us today in that context 2,000 years ago. And by virtue of the fact that God providentially protected that scripture and it has come to us 2,000 years later, it still has application. It wasn't written to Abraham. It was written about Abraham. He never saw those things, but it was written for those who would read them later. That includes Paul's audience to the church at Rome and includes us today. And so I want us to understand and appreciate Zephaniah. In order to do that, here are the things that I want us to talk about. There are just four broad areas. I want us to talk about background who he was and what he said and when he lived, the who, how, what, when, where, why, those questions. We're going to bring those up in just a little bit. But I also want us to think about uh, the text itself. We're not going to read through all the, ch uh, the chapters. It's only three chapters. You could do that very quickly while I'm speaking if you want to. But we're going to summarize the gist of those chapters so we can understand what they are about. Then we're going to notice something about some key principles and some key themes from the text. Not all of them, some of them. And then finally, uh, we're going to make uh, some applications, some takeaways. I, I want to say something before we get to the takeaways, and I'll repeat it when we get there. One of the standard things that's often done in the context of preaching and teaching is there's usually a reading and explanation and exposition of a text. And then usually near the end, whoever's teaching, whoever's preaching, uh, comes up with some applications. And I ran across an article not too long ago, the last week or so, in which the person was saying, we need to stop making application of Scripture. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, well, that's rude. You know, we've been doing that forever and ever. What do you mean? And he says, application sounds like it's something that you do once, like you apply a coat of paint, uh, or, or you're going to apply a varnish to uh, some furniture or whatever. He says, I prefer to say that rather than applying what's taught, that we embody it and that we live it, and that it becomes an essential part of who we are. And I like that. So if you see the word apply from the standpoint of lessons that are brought out in the context of Scripture, I want you to assume that it means it's going to become a part of you. It's not just something that's applied once, like mosquito spray. If you live where I live, you've got to walk out with mosquito spray on, on you sometimes, and, but it's got to wash off. That's not a permanent part of who I am, thankfully. But, but what I read in Scripture, I want it to apply to me in a much more permanent fashion. I want it to be embodied in my life. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through these four parts. It's going to be a little bit more extended than the quick slide that you see so far. Uh, but we're going to talk about the background, the chapter summary. Uh, we're going to talk about some key themes and some principles. And then we're going to get into uh, some takeaways, more than just uh, immediate application, but something that we hope is going to change us on an ongoing basis. So here's what we want to do. We want to answer the typical journalistic questions. The who, what, when, where, why, and how of Zephaniah. This is going to help us understand something about who he was, the times during which he lived. So when we survey the chapter, it's going to make a little bit more sense. So we're going to talk with, start out with talking about the who. And the who that we're going to talk about is Zephaniah. But we want to, before we talk about him, we want to talk about the prophets generally. You already introduced a few things about them, saying that all of the prophets were in large measure messianic. And it's not limited just to the larger well-known prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. They were all uh, speaking about the Messiah in one form or another, or the Messiah's kingdom. The prophets are covenant enforcers. Now, what does that mean? No prophet ever revealed anything new about who God was or what God wanted. 
everything the prophets taught was much older than the prophets. One of the things that Jesus did in speaking to the two men in route to Emmaus and, and speaking to the apostles, when he spoke about everything that the scriptures taught, he started with the law, the Torah, that is Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then he spoke about the, uh, the uh, Ketubim, that is the writings, and then the Nebeim, which is the prophets. Everything that was taught within them had been taught long before. And so the principles that we're going to see brought out by this prophet, Zephaniah, and every other prophet, everything he taught was, it was true from the time that God revealed the law to Israel at Mount Sinai. And so their job was to call people back to a prior existing set of principles and laws, a moral code, a system by which they offered sacrifices and did business and were involved in domestic relationships among themselves and their family and their cities and other nations. All of those things were as old as Moses. As we're going to see in a little bit that he prophesies in the 7th century B.C., about 640 to 609 B.C. But the law that he's calling people to have attention to, that he wants them to focus on, is 900 years older than that. And so nothing Zephaniah says or any other prophet says is new from the standpoint of what God wants. It's all old. And it's all old by design. You read in the book of uh, Jeremiah, he calls attention to the old paths. And so Jeremiah, who's going to live after the time of Isaiah, and uh, uh, roughly the same uh, time uh, that we see uh, Zephaniah living, he calls attention to the old past. What's he doing? I want you to go back to what God wanted the children of Israel to do, going back to Mount Sinai. So the first thing I want us to understand is that the prophets are covenant enforcers. So let's think about Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a prophet called by God. We're going to emphasize that in just a moment. And what's unique, he is a descendant of King Hezekiah, his great-grandson. Now that's not said of any other prophet in the, in the Old Testament. None of the writing prophets and none of the oral prophets that I know of that he is connected to a great king, one of the two greatest, most righteous kings after David, the last one being Josiah, in whose reign Zephaniah prophesies. Now that's significant. There's something also that's significant as we get into this. We're going to see uh, what his name means, and that's going to come into a word play later in the context uh, of the book of Zephaniah. The name Zephaniah means Yahweh has hidden either from the standpoint of sheltering or protecting, or Yahweh has hidden in order to keep something that's valuable, a treasure protected from something else. And later, he's going to speak to some of God's people as being hidden because they are special in God's sight. Not hidden in the sense that he doesn't want anybody to know who they are, but hidden in the sense that they are protected or that they are valued by God as a treasure. And so as you look through the opening verse, verse 1, you're going to see it's the longest genealogical information provided for any prophets. Four generations of his ancestors are listed there, one of which was King Hezekiah that we mentioned. No other prophet is introduced that way. It usually says, this is what Isaiah the son of Amos saw. That's it. He's the son of, and it lists one generation back. But it ties Zephaniah to four generations, specifically to include Hezekiah. Why? Because there's something about the connection to Hezekiah that's going to give him standing in the courts of the day. I want to say something before we get into the heart of this about what prophets did. As you read through a message like Zephaniah, we read what was written. But we need to understand that most of the messages that were presented by Zephaniah and all the other prophets were presented in an in-your-face manner. We're working through the Bible in our everyday with God study at the church at Dahlonega. And if you go to the Bible.net forward slash EDWG, which stands for Every Day with God, you'll see about 180 lessons already up there. Every sermon, every slide, all the audio, all the video, all the classes. We do three uh, classes every Sunday. Uh, we do that all the time as we're not just reading through the Bible, but we're reviewing it on a regular basis. So we're not just reading it and everybody raise their hand and say, I've read my reading. Uh, we want to see what's been said and we want to review that. Well, the reason I bring that up is this coming Sunday, I'm going to talk about Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, the, the, the uh, things that I put out there already, if you go to our Facebook page, facebook.com, and then look for the Delonica Church, you'll see the slides already up there. I asked this question, why was Jeremiah such an in-your-face prophet? Well, he wasn't the only one. God literally told Jeremiah to go stand in the gate and preach this message to the people going in and out of the town. He literally told Jeremiah to stand near the doors of the temple and preach this to the people as they were going in and out of the temple. And some of the stuff was pretty, pretty you know, edgy, calling people to the carpet for their sins. Zephaniah, a prophet, 
was also doing similar things, though we don't see them explicitly stated as much in the context of Zephaniah. Much of the messages were delivered specifically to people before whom he stood. And one of the peoples, one of the groups of people that he's going to stand before are the princes, which refers to the leaders, and other prophets who aren't doing the right uh, things that they're supposed to do, and the priests. Jeremiah did the same thing, Jeremiah chapter 23. He called those three Ps to task. The princes, which refers to all of the leaders, sometimes including the kings, though in this case not Josiah. The priests, who in large measure had... Uh, uh, had uh, vacated the premises of the temple and weren't doing what God wanted them to do, I mean spiritually speaking. And then with reference to those who were prophets, he has standing with them because of his connection to King Hezekiah. And so he's going to be a prophet that's going to be able to go up front and toe-to-toe with somebody and take them to task because he's got that kind of pedigree. So that's significant as we go further into the text. So this is the longest genealogical uh, record that you see. And we also wouldn't be mentioned before, he is distinguished in that he is a descendant of a righteous king. The only more righteous king since David was the one that's going to be introduced in the first verse, Josiah. And so connected to a king, big deal. Connected to a righteous king, an even bigger deal. So he has the right to speak his mind with reference to the subjects that he's going to address. So he distinguishes the descendant from righteous Hezekiah. And he uh, uh, is, uh, because of that platform, uh, going to be able to do some things that some other prophets might not have been able to do. And that allows him to have a platform to address the sins of the court. What do I mean sins of the court? Of those who were ruling, not just kings and princes, but anybody who's in a position of influence. Now, what's, what's the importance of that? Because the leaders, the political, the social leaders, uh, the people that would be followed on Instagram, you know, uh, three century, three uh, uh, millennia ago, those were the people that he was talking to. The people who had followers, religiously, politically, militarily, socially, for whatever reason, he's going to be able to address those people because there were a lot of things that were going on in their lives that needed addressing. So that's what we want to do from the standpoint of covering uh, the who. We're going to have to go a little bit quicker, and I can be very wordy sometimes and speak very quickly, and so I apologize for that, but there's a tremendous amount of material to cover in the context of just three short chapters. So let's go to the next question, and that's the what. What is going on in this context? What's everything about? Well, let's think about that. As we think about the what, we need to know that as a prophet, Zephaniah was both a forth teller and a foreteller. Well, what's the difference between the two? Well, a foreteller is somebody who simply proclaimed God's word to the people smack dab in front of him. Most of the work of prophets was foretelling, just saying right now to people standing in front of me what God wants you to hear. That's what most of prophecy is about. A very limited part of prophecy is foretelling, that is, predicting the future. And so Zephaniah is going to do a little bit of that because one of the prominent themes in his writings is the day of the Lord is coming. And so he's predicting a a time of judgment, but he's also predicting a time of future blessings in that expression. So this is his job description as a prophet. This is what he was supposed to do. This is what all of them were supposed to do. So as a prophet, Zephaniah was obligated to proclaim the word of the Lord. That's the way the passage starts out. That tells us a lot of things about who he was and the authority that he had uh, to proclaim his message. So prophets were to preach God's word you see the burden of the war. That's simply an oracle or a judgment that's going to come. You see that especially in some uh, prophets. But the word of the Lord is supposed to be preached. It came to them. Look at all the passages. I'm not going to refer to all of them. But in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and also in the first verse, the word of God came to Zephaniah. That's significant. What does it mean? That's a tacit claim to revelation. That means the word originated with God. Jesus said to Peter, uh, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father. What's his point? You didn't make this up, Peter. Nobody else made this up. This, This was revealed to you by God. That's the claim. It's a revelation. But it's also a claim for inspiration, that is, the delivery was safeguarded. Paul makes a big deal about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then finally, And it's not only revealed by God, inspired by God, but it's authoritative, which means you better do what God says. That's inherent in the expression, the word of God came to Zephaniah and every other one of the prophets. So what he's doing here is pretty much what we see every other prophet doing. Their job is to proclaim what God has given them to say. John was a prophet who came from God, which means that his message came 
from God. Which means that when Jesus confounded the religious leaders later in life, in the last week of his life, in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 23, chapter 21, excuse me, when he asked them, where did John's baptism come, from heaven or man? He knew, of course, that it came from heaven, that it wasn't something that John made up. That's what every prophet of God was going to do. So let's think about uh, the message then. The message, in effect, is, and this sums up everything in Scripture, God says to the prophets, oral or writing and everything written, God says, here's where you are, here's where you need to be, move. And in rare instances, here's where you are, that's where you need to be, stay. You see that, for example, in the church in Philadelphia in the book of Revelation. But more often than not, Scripture is written to tell people you're not where you are. You're not supposed to be there. You're not in a good place for you, physically, spiritually. You're not the person I want you to be. So you need to change. And so this model of changing to get closer to where, you got, where God wants you to be, that's everywhere in Scripture. And that's not just a Zephaniah thing. That's everything that we see about all of the prophets, indeed, all of the Scripture as a whole. So again, let's go into the next question, the who, how, the who, what, when. We're going to get into the when. And that's going to be addressed in the very first verse. Because in the very first verse, we're going to find out when it was that he was prophesying. Well, uh, when was that? Well, I haven't asked this by the word when. I don't know if you see that there. But there's a question about did he come before Josiah that prompted Josiah's reforms, or did he come during the midst of Josiah's reforms in order to encourage them? And scholars will debate about that, and that's not what we're going to talk about. I just want us to understand that he lived during the days of, of Josiah, king of Judah. Josiah was the last righteous king in the southern kingdom before the children of Israel, uh, before the children of Judah went into captivity. He wasn't the last king. Some of his sons reigned on the throne after him, but he's the last righteous king. So that's significant to understand. And he reigns about 640 to 609. So exactly what time frame within that 31-year period uh, that he reigned. Remember, he became a king when he was eight. So he's safeguarded by mentors and tutors and so forth until he begins making decisions on his own when he was 16 and when he was 20. But that's the time frame when Zephaniah would have been prophesying. Now, what's the significance of that? Very quickly, here's a time frame to consider. Abraham lived roughly 2,000 years before uh, Christ, and we're just giving round numbers to make it easy. Moses, 1,500 years. David, 1,000 years. Isaiah, about 750 years. So we're getting closer to the time when the southern kingdom is about to go into captivity. That's important. The northern kingdom falls in 722, 723. The southern kingdom is going to fall in 606, and then the actual city is going to be destroyed, the city of Jerusalem, in 586. And then they're going to be returned in 536, and the temple is going to be rebuilt. Now, what's the significance of all of those dates? I want you to see that Zephaniah is, is very uh, intense in what he says because of how close he is in time to the children of Israel being carried away. So notice the date 640 to 609 for Josiah's reign. And you will note that 606 is when Babylonian captivity started. That's the first time that Nebuchadnezzar came and took people away, some of them leaders and kings and princes and so forth, and took them away to Babylon. That's within three years. And so the nearness of that prompts him to say what he does and the way he says it. And the same thing about Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the in-your-face prophet that I mentioned before, bridges this time right before the period of captivity and into the period of captivity, though he himself did not go into it. And so that's why Jeremiah was so intense in what he said to these people. This is about to happen soon. This is not, you know, uh, this is not the end of the time prophecy we're talking about. This is not the coming of the Lord co uh, coming about, uh, we're talking about. That is the arrival of, of Jesus in the flesh. The, uh, that, that incarnation part, this is not the end of time. This is judgment against you, Jude, in Jerusalem. You need to think about these things because this is happening very soon. So something about that is very important. I want us to think about what's going on immediately before Josiah comes on the scene. His father, Ammon, and his grandfather, Manasseh, were two of the wickedest kings that ever lived in the southern kingdom. They were horribly, irreconcilably, incredibly wicked until you get to Chronicles, because Manasseh repented before he died. But the wickedness that he started was kind of like what Solomon did. It was because of Solomon's sins of allowing his wives to uh, cause him to, to be uh, uh, lenient and, and, and sympathetic and supportive of 
the false gods that they worship that God determined to divide the kingdom in the first place. But he didn't do it then out of reverence for the reputation of David. But he did it during the days of his son, Rehoboam. And the kingdom split. What split it? It makes no difference how righteous Rehoboam could have been. That's not the case. But it was already determined the kingdom was going to be split because of Solomon's sin. It's already determined because of Manasseh's incredible wickedness that the kingdom was going to end and Judah was going to go into captivity. And all the righteousness of Josiah, the most far-reaching in its reforms, couldn't stop that. And so here is an incredibly righteous king who succeeds two kings, father and grandfather before him, who are just horrible, horribly wicked, and nothing is going to change that. And so these kings that preceded him allowed and encouraged the worship of pagan deities even in the temple of God. Very quickly, Jeremiah in one passage says to the children of Judah about the same time, you have as many pagan gods as you do cities in the land of Judah. And then one time he says you have as many pagan gods as you do streets in the city of Jerusalem. And then one time he says there are as many pagan deities as there are rooftops in the city of Jerusalem, meaning it was in everybody's home. You might think, well, surely that's an overstatement. Not really. Not really. Zephaniah alludes to the same things about the worship of pagan deities on the rooftops of people's homes. That was just another room where people lived. Peter went on the rooftop to pray in Acts chapter 10. That was an extension of their house. And so many people were involved in idolatry. This is what he was facing during this particular time in the history of the nation of Israel, specifically the southern kingdom of Judah. And so this is a prophet that has to deal with that stuff. And this is a prophet that deals with it in a way pretty much like everybody else does, only rather than 66 chapters of Isaiah and 56 chapters of Jeremiah, you have three chapters in which he does the same thing. You're doing bad, God's going to punish you. Don't be surprised. It's in effect what he's going to say. You're doing bad, God's going uh, to punish you. Don't be surprised. Now, you will recover at the end, but you're still going to be punished before uh, any kind of restoration is going to take place. So where are all these things happening? Well, they're happening in the southern kingdom. Notice he's prophesying in the reign of Josiah, who is the king of Judah. It's the king of Judah. So this is not the unrighteous nation Israel. They had already been taken into captivity. They have been in captivity already, almost 100 years. This is the southern kingdom. This is where David reigned. This is where the good guys were. There were no righteous kings in the north at all. This is where the temple was. This is where the priesthood was. This is where David moved the tabernacle initially in preparation to build the uh, temple, though he did not get to do that. His son did that. This was that Judah and Jerusalem, and it's about to be destroyed. So very quick history from the time of Egypt to the time of Canaan. Uh, Israel was a united kingdom, was a united kingdom. They weren't for a long time after that. After 120 years of the United Kingdom, Saul and David and Solomon, the kingdom divided during the time of Rehoboam. And so this is past the time of the division and the time when only Judah existed because the northern kingdom had been taken into captivity. And so this was that period of time. The northern kingdom already gone. And many times the prophets would refer to the northern kingdom as, as Judah's big sister, your older sister. You know what happened to them? Guess what's going to happen to you? What they did, the path that they followed, is the path that you're on. Why did they go into captivity? For idolatry, for unfaithfulness, for not worshiping God as God wanted them to. They went in sooner because they were ahead of you in their, in their wickedness. But you're not that far behind. 116 years later, same thing is going to happen. And so this is where this is going on. This is very significant. This is where God put his name above the cherubim that was above the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place of the temple where God's presence was said to have dwelt. That's where this was going on. And so this was about to happen within just a few short years that the southern kingdom was also going to be taken into captivity. So let's go into the next uh, uh, issue of background as to why all of these things are happening. And we've already alluded to some of them. They're happening because of their sins. All right, I already mentioned the where. 
I may have backward, did I hit the wrong slide? Ah, let's, let's just keep going, I apologize. I forgot there's more wear here. And, and so many of the prophets uh, that prophesied were either before, during, or after the exile, and they were either northern or southern uh, prophets, that is, mostly to the kingdom uh, of Israel in the north or the kingdom of Judah in the south. Occasionally, you'll have an anomaly like Jonah who preached uh, to, uh, to Nineveh. And so what's going on in this context is Zephaniah is preaching against Judah and Jerusalem. And I want you to note, and there are many, many more times than are recorded here, every last one of these passages in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Daniel, in Joel, in Amos, in Micah, in Zechariah, Zephaniah, and Malachi, every last one of them specifically, specifically mention Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the political capital city, but it's also the central place of worship. And so prophecies are made by all of these prophets and all of these passages and many others as well against them because God was concerned about sins going on not just in his backyard, but in his house. In his house. And so that's why the prophets were repeatedly saying what they were saying to the people uh, in front of them during this period of time, during this window of time prior to them going into captivity. It was important because that's where God was. And God wanted to make sure that they understood that this could not continue, that something had to give, that ultimately they were going to be judged because of their sins. So why are all these things happening? We've already alluded to that. Uh, they're happening because of their sins and uh, because they haven't been faithful to God. So why the prophecy and then why Judah? Uh, both of those questions are going to be answered as we go a little bit further. Why prophesy? Because God people, God's people failed to live up to his expectations. That's, you're not where you need to be, move, get to where you need to be. Isaiah 1 says, this is what you look like. You, d you look like animals that don't know who feeds you. Animals know who feeds them, but you don't know that God takes care of you. You look like a body that sins sick from the top of its head to the bottom of its feet, and you're unrepentant. All of those illustrations are more given in the first chapter. Why? Because you're not what I want you to be. And that's 100 years before. Nothing has changed. The prophecy of Isaiah hasn't changed. Prophecies of Jeremiah haven't changed. Zephaniah is saying the same things, preaching to the same people, generally speaking, same generations, in the same place. Why? Because they're not doing what God wants them to do. So that message is proclaimed because they need to hear it. But it's also a demonstration of God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's patience. The long-suffering of God, according to 2 Peter 3, verse 15, is salvation. God's patient with that. Psalm 103 and Psalm 130, both of those passages teach pretty much the same thing. If God marks sin the moment we sinned, we'd all be dead. I wouldn't be here. None of you would be here. What's the point? God doesn't cause us to die immediately when we first sin. Didn't happen to Adam and Eve. There are exceptions, Nadab and Abihu, for example, in Leviticus chapter 10. But by and large, nobody drops dead the moment they, they commit the first transgression against God. Why? Because God knows our frame that we're but dust. And he gives us time to figure out what's right and wrong. And often pleads with us repeatedly, in chapter 4, 6 or 7 times, to come to our senses and to change. And so that's a demonstration of God's love, God's mercy. So this is why he's prophesying, you're doing something that's wrong, but I want you to change, and I'm giving you the opportunity uh, to do that. And also because God's not just giving them uh, an opportunity, but because it's realistic that God expects them to be forgiven, because God's a forgiving God. He allows them to do over, we call the whole process of the new birth, being born again killing the old person, becoming a new person, all that do-over concept, that's everywhere in Scripture. That's not just the New Testament principle. And so he keeps his promise. He's a covenant-keeping God. And his covenant was that through Abraham, all nations of the earth are going to be saved, and I'm going to use you, Israel, as a means to bring that about. And this was still the nation of Israel, even though they weren't doing everything that God wanted. 900 years since the law of Moses, they'd moved away repeatedly, and God's taken them back repeatedly. Read through the book of Judges, and one occasion God stops and says, I don't know if you've been counting or not, this is my paraphrase, but this is at least the seventh time you've gotten this cycle of sin, and I've taken you back every time. Remember the question that Peter asked, how many times do I forgive my brother? Unlimited was the intent. Well, that's what God's been doing to Israel. So God wants them to change. God allows 
uh, them to change. God prompts them to change. He pleads with them to change. So why Judah? Well, we touched on this in part already. Why Judah? Because Judah was, or because Judah was supposed to be, the religious center of everything that God established going back to Sinai nearly a thousand years before. Judah was important, not because they made it important, not because of the incredible buildings that were there going back to the time of Solomon, which were about to be destroyed, but because God made it important, because God placed his name there, because it's where the temple was, it's where the priesthood was centered, the sacrifice, the feast, the assemblies, the presence of God was there. You get to the book of Ezekiel, he's going to speak about the temple, the children of Israel in captivity for 20 years before the temple is destroyed. And they act as if everything's okay, even though they're in, the, in, in Babylon, and even though they're in captivity, they said, but you know, back home the temple still stands. And at some point, uh, Ezekiel has the dubious task of telling them, well, no, no, no. The Spirit of God left the most holy place, went outside the walls of the temple, went outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem, went over the hills and far away, so to speak. What's his point? God's not there in that building anymore. And by the way, the building's not there either. It's gone. And so God was concerned about what they were doing and why they were doing it, and God called them on it, hoping that they're going to make changes in their lives. So let's, let's, let's talk about how this is going to happen. This is going to happen by means of the message, by means of God's word. And this is not just a Zephaniah thing. This is an every prophet thing. This is an entire New Testament thing. This is the Bible. God reveals words and thoughts and a message by means of the Spirit to inspired speakers and writers who, when they spoke and wrote to the people who heard or read the message, received a God through the Spirit message so that the hearers at the end of the process would know the mind of Christ. That's exactly what you see. 1 Corinthians 2, 16, at the end of this process that starts in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, at the end of it, we have the mind of Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, when you read what I wrote, you'll understand my knowledge of the mystery. So God's revealing his mind and his heart to the people of Judah by means of the words that Zephaniah is going to deliver. This is important. God commissioned him to do this very thing. Not to trouble the people, but to get the people to commit to what they need to be. So God commissions the prophets. He says, go tell, pick a person, pick a nation, and tell them this. What is it? It's usually you're not doing anything right. You need to get right. And so that's, that's the job. This is how God's will is going to be disseminated in this time. God speaks by means of the prophets. He sent them all day long, morning to evening, it says in many Old Testament passages. The principle by which the gospel is preached today is nothing new. It's the same thing that was done during the period of the prophets. God constantly reveals his will by means of his word. And so this is what he tells them to do. He told Moses to go lead my people out. Told Isaac, go pre Isaiah, go preach this message to people. How long am I going to do it? Well, you're going to preach it a long time. And by the way, not everybody's going to listen to you, but just keep doing it. That's the job of a prophet. It's not something that you can measure responses to very easily. It's not easily quantifiable. Indeed, many of the prophets wanted to give up. Jeremiah wanted to give up. Elijah wanted to give up. But it's delivered via the spoken and the written words, the miracles, the illustrations, and so forth that are presented in the scriptures uh, to nations, sometimes singular, sometimes plural, sometimes singular individuals, and sometimes plural. This is the message, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. This is what his job was. This is what his job was. Well, very quickly, let's go through some of the outlines of the chapter. There are three chapters. Uh, you could read through them. You could have read it three times already in the last few minutes while we've been speaking. And incidentally, all of these slides will, uh, will be up online later. Uh, if you go to the Dahlonega Church uh, Facebook page, I'll make sure that the PDF is up there for you uh, to have access to it. So let's look at some brief outlines and thoughts from uh, the opening chapter and then the second and the third. Then we'll look at some principles and, and, and close with some, uh, some takeaways. So at the very beginning, we see the identification uh, of who uh, uh, Zephaniah was, his name, his mission, his place and time. We've already reviewed some of those in the who part of our lesson. Uh, we're going to see that this is what he's supposed to do. Starting in verse 2, God's message starts very quickly. Hi, Zephaniah, this is God. I've got a message to you to deliver to the people of uh, Josiah's day in the city of Jeru uh, Judah, uh, city of Jerusalem in the, in the country of Judah. And here's the message. In verse 2, you're off and running through the end of the third chapter. So one brief verse of introduction, and the rest of it is God's message to the people of Judah by means of Zephaniah. So that's what the rest of the text is. Well, what does he say? 
Well, he starts off really positively. God says, I'm going to consume everything. What? And then after he says, I'm going to consume everything, he goes through specific things that he's going to consume. I'm going to consume man, I'm going to consume beasts, I'm going to consume birds, everything in the creation, in the heavens above and the seas below and on the earth. I'm going to consume it all. Why? Because I made it all. I can do with it what I want. Why, why are you doing this? Well, because of their sins. Because of their sins. So the land and the heavens and the sea, that reflects the entirety of the creation that we see brought out in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And by the way, this is going to impact you, the city of Judah, and in, in, uh, the city of Jerusalem in the, in the uh, uh, province in the country of Judah. Everything is going to be taken out of the way. Everything is going to be consumed. When God says everything, he means you too. He may not say you too in the beginning, but he's going to say, when everything's going to be judged, he's assuming you understand if everything's going to be judged, I'm part of everything, I'm going to be judged. That's right. He asks them to draw that inevitable conclusion. It's going to happen. Why? It's going to happen because of their false worship. It's going to happen not just because of what Ammon and, and what uh, uh, Manasseh did. It's going to happen because of what multiple generations have been doing for years. They were worshiping the host of heaven. They were worshiping everything, everywhere. And so God says, because you're worshiping everything that I've made, everywhere, in the place where I've made it, you're going to be punished. And everything, everywhere, will be consumed. Why? Because that's how far-reaching your sins were. That's pretty drastic. God says, in effect, figuratively speaking, I'm going to destroy everything because you've ruined everything. Sometimes we get mad at somebody, we'll say something in a fit of anger, knowing we're not telling the truth. You ruined everything! That's kind of what God's doing here. You've ruined everything. So I'm going to destroy it all. I'm going to start all over. They knew history of Scripture. They knew that God did that before, during the time of the flood. And so this is what's going on. The very beginning of the book of Zephaniah, he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't mince words. He starts off very quickly by saying, this is what's going to happen. God's going to judge you and everything is going to be consumed. Everything's going to be taken away. So let's continue through chapter one. The day of the Lord is coming. Now that's a huge, huge, huge theme in the text. The day of the Lord is coming. And it means two things. It means God's judgment is coming. It also means that God's power to save will also be coming. God's prepared and God's going to offer a sacrifice. And guess what? You are it. You, the nation of Judah, and you, the city of Jerusalem, and all the sins, God's going to sacrifice you. That's what needs to be burned up. Because you are not doing what I want you to do correctly. That's pretty dramatic. God says, I'm, I'm going to do a feast. I'm tired of the way you do feasts. Let me, let me invite you. I'm going to invite you as guests to my feast. And so he invites these guests, and God's going to punish everybody who's in attendance because they're all guilty of sin kind of like what uh, Jehu did in inviting all the worshipers of Baal into the temple and making sure no worship, uh, worshipers of God were there. He's going to eradicate them all. Only this time, God's doing it. He's going to do this to all these people. Well, to whom is he going to do it? Well, we mentioned this before. He's going to do it to the princes, to the leaders, those who love and live in riches, violence, deceit, complacency, those people who think and who assume that God will not act. That's interesting. Read that verse, verse 7 and following. God's not going to do anything for us. God's not going to do anything against us. We're just going to rock along. Got the perfect status quo. Don't rock the boat, Zephaniah. God's not going to do anything. Really. Is that what you think? That's what they thought. But judgment's going to come. Judgment's going to come to everybody, everywhere. Notice the universals. Everything that I've created, I'm going to destroy. Why? Because you've ruined it all. So judgment's going to come to all. All, 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 everywhere. Lots of universals brought out in this passage to indicate the extent of their fall from God. What they love, everything that's near and dear to them, everything that's near and dear to them is going to be taken away. And it's usually reference to physical things. Position, pride, possessions, some center of influence. God says you're going to lose all of that. Why? Because I'm not the center of your life. And that's just the beginning of chapter 1. And it doesn't get better as you continue throughout the rest of the book. God's going to take them to task for all the sins that they're committing. So let's look a little bit further at what he is talking about in the book. All right, chapter 1 as we continue. The day of the Lord is near. 
We mentioned this already. The timetable of Josiah's reign ends at 609, and the destruction is going to come in 606. But there are lots of telltale signs that things weren't going right already. That's why these prophets, Zephaniah and Jeremiah, are speaking what they are. Uh, so the day of the Lord's going to come, and it's going to bring trouble, distress, devastation. All these terms are used literally in the text. I didn't write them and make them up. That's in the text. This is, this is deep, dark, do, you know, gloom and doom despair. That's, that's what it says. God's announced it. It's definitely going to happen. There's no way that you can overlook this. It's going to come against places of strength. It's going to come against those people who think they see and know everything, but ultimately they're going to be blinded. They're not seeing what God wants them to see. They're not doing what God wants them to do. Well, why is this happening? Because they've sinned against the Lord. That's just general picture of their sins. Specific sins are brought out as you go throughout the rest of their text. Notice it says that the things that they relied on, the things that they loved and lived in, were not going to be able to help them. Your wealth cannot help you in the day of judgment. Not going to help you. Something of beneficial, and I'm using that with very, very guarded speech, there's something beneficial in all the evil that's going on in the world and all the things that we're suffering now. Maybe it tells us about things that are more important than all the money we had that we might have lost, or the jobs that we had that we might have lost. And I'm not making light of any of that. If we assume that things and the ability to collect things and earn money protects us in some way spiritually from God, we are mistaken. This is where Judah was. This is where Israel was during the days of Amos. They assumed that they could buy anything, have anything, because of their power and their strength and their wealth and their ability to take advantage of others. And God says, what's going to happen when I take advantage of you? What will all of your wealth do for you then? Nothing. Nothing. And so he's concerned that uh, they are complacent. He's concerned that they don't think God's going to act. God says, I'm going to rid you of all of that. It's all going to be gone. Again, notice the universal nature of what he's saying. It's all going to be taken away. None of these things are going to last. I will remove them from you because you haven't been trusting in me. You've been trusting in something else other than me. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's not just a New Testament principle, Matthew 6.33. That's a biblical principle everywhere. Always put God first. So God's going to gather them together. He's going to gather them together because they're going to be brought to judgment. You are an undesirable nation. God says something that's very powerful. He says, I don't want you anymore. It's not that I don't love you, but I don't want you because you look so much unlike what I made you to be. That, that, that message is everywhere in Scripture. Romans 1, there's a whole list of sins in which the, the world was so unlike what God wanted them to be. And God says, I don't recognize you anymore. The sin-sick body in Isaiah chapter 1, I don't recognize you anymore. You're not what you used to be. So God's anger is going to come upon you. But there's an interesting glimpse here. It says those who uphold and sought after justice, righteousness, and humility, there's a chance that they might not be punished. And look at the language he uses here. You may be hidden by God, which means you may be protected by God. That's what Zephaniah's name means hidden by God, protected by God, as if you are something valuable, a treasure to be safeguarded. Even in the midst of this incredible wickedness, he alludes to the fact that there are some people who haven't bought in to the mindset of others. See that in some of the letters to the churches of Asia. That's a powerful thought that's brought out in this passage. You may be hidden by God, and thus uh, the punishment may not come directly to you. But God's going to judge all nations. And the way he does this, if you look at it on a map, it makes sense. But if you just look at the names, he starts with Philistia in the west. He moves to Moab and Ammon on the other side in the east. And he goes to Ethiopia, which is principally in the south, and to Assyria. In effect, he says, everybody around you, the whole geographical map, they're all going to be judged. And these are just some of the nations. There are many other nations in Isaiah chapter 13 through 23. They're going to be judged as well. God says, I'm going to judge the world. And guess what? You, Judah, you're part of the world. You're going to be judged too. God doesn't just say, I'm going to judge everybody around you. I'm going to judge you because you're smack dab in the middle of all this. Because you're supposed to be my people. So Zephaniah is not probably the kind of book you want to read to, before you go to bed tonight and have a, a good feeling. Say, boy, I feel good having read this. Uh, because there, there's a lot of negativity there. But it's, it's negative on purpose to bring about something that's positive. Hopefully something that's positive. Hopefully they're going to change. All right, so let's look at the last chapter. The last chapter 
God's going to judge Jerusalem. Now he's home. He circled the map, so to speak, by going west and then east and then north and then south, but now he comes home. Why? Because you're in the center of all of this. God's going to judge Jerusalem. Why? Because look at the things he says about them. You are an oppressing city. Wait a minute. The center of worship, the priesthood, the, the, uh, the, the sacrificial system, the feasts, the assemblies, all of those things, God's presence, and you're calling city, uh, the city an oppressing city? You can almost see Jesus when he says the same sort of thing, looking upon the city, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks. But you would not. Not that they could not, but you would not. Jerusalem is often the object of strong denunciation by God's prophets. Notice he says they haven't obeyed, they haven't received instruction, they haven't trusted, they haven't drawn near to God. Her princes are wicked, her priests are wicked, her prophets are wicked, just like Jeremiah says in chapter uh, 23. Same thing, roughly the same period of time. Everything is just not right. It's not the way it needs to be. But God, who is righteous, never fails. Even though you have failed him, he never fails you. That's why I mentioned before, especially in the book of Ezra, God is a God who endlessly forgives, who allows endless do-overs, and is a perpetual covenant keeper, not a covenant breaker. You failed, but I haven't. And I'm here to catch you, and I'm here to make things right if you come back to me, if you come to your senses. The righteous, the unrighteous, excuse me, are going to be destroyed. Nations, cities, people, including Judah, including Jerusalem. And so this is not a very pretty picture, but he holds open some hope at the very end of the text that we're going to get to in just a moment or so. So this is the third chapter, the last of three chapters in, in the book of Zephaniah. So God has intended, and God has expected, Judah and Jerusalem uh, to, to listen to him, to fear him, to receive instruction, and not to be cut off. This is not part of what God wanted to happen. I'm not saying he didn't know, but that's not what he wanted to happen. He says, Israel didn't wait for me, and that's not just a time thing, passage of time, but in the passage of time to be faithful to him. But now... They're going to have to wait for God's judgment. You didn't wait for me to be the kind of people that I wanted you to be while all of these things were going on. Now you're going to have to wait for something. Judgment's going to come. And I'm going to gather together all the nations. He starts off that way in chapter 3. And all the nations are going to be punished. And you, you, because you're part of all the nations, you are going to be punished. But you don't get too far into the third chapter until you see God's going to restore there's almost no passage in Scripture where something negative is introduced, which is usually a description of man's sin, except that there's a solution to it. First sin occurs, Genesis chapter 3 in the opening verses. Drop down to verse 15, there's a solution. Sin of Cain in the context of Genesis chapter 4, God has a solution. Don't you know if you do well, you will be accepted. There's always a solution presented in the greater context of every sin that's introduced. And so their sins are not just piled on and piled on and piled on. There's a hope before you get to the end of the book. God will restore. He's going to restore peoples. That's interesting. He doesn't just mean Judah. He doesn't just mean Jerusalem. He's going to restore their speech. He's going to restore their pure worship. He's going to restore them in attitude, meekness, and humility, and trust. There's going to be a remnant that will make it through this, and they will be able to have abundant joy. God's going to remove all the bad things that are going on, all the judgments, all the enemies, all the disasters, all the fear, all the affliction that's come upon them because of their shortcomings. That's going to be gone. That's kind of a prefiguring of what you see in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation. No more tears, no more sorrow. It's all gone. God makes this kind of promise near the end. So let's look at some principles. Some principles that uh, are brought out in the book of Zephaniah that I think, I hope, you will find very beneficial. So what, what did God, through Zephaniah, what did he teach to Jude and Jerusalem through these three chapters? Lots of negativity, but there's a little bit of hope at the end. What's he going to teach them? Well, he's going to teach them first that the day of the Lord is definitely coming. And the day of the Lord, first and foremost, is a day of judgment. Because his people have abandoned him, because his people have forsaken him, uh, because they haven't thought his thoughts and lived his ways, as Isaiah 55 says they should have, because of that, they're going to be judged. That's definitely going to happen. 
And because the nations that surround them, the ones that he started when he went west, east, and north, and south, because they've done the same thing, they too are going to be judged. That's all over the book of Zephaniah and also other prophets. They're going to be judged. Judgment's going to be universal. You are not going to be exempted because you were my special people. Everything defaults to a pre-creation status. What does that mean? God says, you've ruined the world, you've ruined my creation, so the nations are going to be destroyed. And he says, I'm going to destroy everything, everything in the sea, everything in the sky, everything that walks on the land, even mankind. He's saying all of those things hyperbolically, gross exaggeration, uh, gross exaggeration for the purpose of emphasis to make a point. You've ruined my world. You've ruined my world. I will take it away from you. That's going to happen. And the day of the Lord, and the number of times it's repeated, not just here, but throughout the prophets and into the New Testament, uh, demonstrates the certitude of this. It's going to happen. Righteous Josiah wasn't going to prevent the day of the Lord from coming. No righteousness could prevent that. It's definitely going to happen. And so these are more key principles and themes. The first one is that the day of the Lord refers to judgment. Judgment is definitely going to happen. It's going to come. There will come an end to this world one day. I don't know when it's going to be. Nobody knows when it's going to be, but it's going to happen. So the day of the Lord in the first place has reference to judgment, but in the second place, uh, there's a much more positive meaning. It's a day of redemption. It's a day of salvation. That too is coming, and it is equally, equally certain. Some may escape, we noticed before, those that are hidden, the coming judgment, but by and large, everybody's going to be judged. Others may learn and others may change because of the judgment that's going to come. They may, they may learn. In Amos chapter 4, God repeatedly told the children of Israel, I sent all of these plagues, I sent all of these things to you, but you didn't repent. Five or six times you didn't repent. And he says, prepare to meet your God. Will you learn from the judgment that's going to come this direction? There's going to be a remnant. The nations are going to be so wiped out that nobody's going to be left that's going to be faithful. That's a major, major message in the prophets, especially in the, the book of Isaiah. From Judah and Jerusalem, from all the nations, there's going to be a remnant. So that's interesting. He segues from focusing on the nations and then centers in on Jerusalem and Judah. And when he talks about a remnant, he doesn't just include Judah and Jerusalem, but people from the nations as well. Isaiah is big on that, Isaiah 65 and 66, about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And these, this remnant, these are going to be changed people. No, it's still going to be Jews, still going to be Gentiles, still going to be people that look like they did before. But they're going to be changed. They're going to have different attitudes. They're going to love what's good and hate what's not. And they're going to be different in their actions. They're not just going to do externally what God wants, but they're going to do externally what God wants because God wants the heart first. He wants mercy prior to sacrifice. So what do we learn? Hopefully, takeaways, and again, not just applying them in the sense that once it's applied, you never have to do it again. But what, what, what do we embody from this message? What do we learn? How does that change us today? Well, I don't know how it changes you. But when I read passages like Zephaniah, I think God's message hasn't changed pretty much even today. Different people, different set of circumstances, different time, uh, you know, different messenger, but the message pretty much was the same. The day of the Lord anticipates a greater judgment that's coming one day when the world as we know it will not be the way it is as we know it today. It's going to be different, totally different. And it's going to be redone in order for God's will to be accomplished for his people who are faithful to him. And so in that day, God's going to judge the secrets of men, Romans chapter 2. Now these are New Testament passages, but I want you to notice that they all bring up the same thing, theme of the day of the Lord. There's a day coming, there's a day coming. We sing songs, there's a great day coming. And that's a scary thing from one perspective, because the great day is both judgment and redemption. But whether or not it's judgment permanently from the standpoint of negatively or redemption depends in part on how faithful we've been. All of these passages in the New Testament focuses on a coming day, every last one of them. And there are scores of them. I've only put some of them on the screen. And so what's the point? Judgment's going to be sure. The end of time is going to happen. I don't know when. Nobody knows when. Uh, but it's sure, and it's definitely going to occur. And so we need to be prepared for that. So the day of the Lord not only anticipates a greater judgment, but the day of the Lord anticipates a greater sacrifice. Because the people that changed then, because their attitudes changed and their actions changed, were going to be a better people. 
with a better covenant, according to Jeremiah 31, and its citation in the book of Hebrews at least twice. And so uh, this people that's going to come, uh, that's going to be different after the day of judgment, after the punishment's going to come, it anticipates that they're going to live sacrificially really from the inside out more so than they did before. This passage extensive from Ezekiel 39 explains that in some in d- detail. They're not going to do what they used to do. They're not going to go through outward motions. They're not going to focus on wealth and power. They're not going to focus on their positions. They're going to focus on things that are more internal, in part because they learned an incredible lesson, in part because they learned that lesson. Sad to say, but they had to go through some very serious things in order to learn that lesson. So what do we learn? How does uh, Zephaniah apply to us today? We already noted that it anticipates a greater sacrifice. All of these things that are presented in this passage uh, are reflected in the book of Revelation in the great judgment scene in chapter 19. Everybody's going to stand before the Lord. And at some point, uh, we will have made, hopefully prior to that, uh, some, some sense of declaration of faith and live the life consistent with that declaration uh, when we become members of the body of Christ through our faith and repentance or immersion into Christ for the remission of our sins and our continued faithfulness. You die to Christ, you stay dead to Christ. You die with Christ in baptism to sin, you stay dead to sin in Christ. It's an ongoing thing. It's not something you do once. There's a permanent change that was affected on the other side of the day of the Lord's judgment that Zephaniah anticipates and that too should apply to us today. So there's some other very important principles that are brought out in this passage. That uh, the day of the Lord anticipates a greater sense of worship and a greater sense of of service than before. Too often Israel is involved in serving themselves, Amos. Too often Israel is involved in serving themselves, uh, the nation of Judah as well. They were too focused on self. They looked too much inwardly and not enough outwardly. Amos takes them to task for being wealthy not just because wealth was wrong, but because their wealth was gotten by ill-gotten means and they took advantage of others. That's not what God wants. God wants them to be uh, faithful. God wants to be uh, like uh, Abraham, uh, who was willing to put God first in all things. And so God wants these people to change. He wants them to change then and he wants us to change today. So continuing looking at our takeaways here, The day of the Lord anticipates a day when everybody will bow before Christ. Now that's brought out in the context of Philippians, and it's also brought out in the context of the book of Revelation. Anticipates a time when there's a wholesale salvation. Now it's not literal in the sense that everybody's going to become Christians before the Lord comes, but that's what God expects. God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth, 2 Peter 3 and 1 Timothy 2. So that's, that's God's intention. It's what God's intention was even during the days of Zephaniah. He wanted everybody, Jews and Gentiles, to be faithful. They weren't, but that doesn't mean that's not what God wanted. So again, how do these things apply to us? Well, the same way it applies to them then. So let's uh, look at that, get the next slide to advance. So notice God often in this context and others identified himself as sovereign. Well, what does that mean? It's not a coinage, though it is used that way in some sense. Uh, To say that God was sovereign is that he's the creator of all, he's the possessor of all, he's the ruler of all, and he's the giver of all. Well, what's the significance of that? God is sovereign, ruled over all the nations. And because he ruled over all the nations, he ruled over Judah. He has always been, and will always be, and is now sovereign. The message of God's sovereignty doesn't fade away because the Old Testament is no longer binding in the sense that it was uh, was under the Old Testament period of time. Those ordinances, the handwriting ordinances that were against us are nailed to the cross in Colossians chapter 2. But God expects the same thing now. He expects nations to be as faithful now as he did then. What God expects of the nations, the world now, is what he expects of his people today. The message of Zephaniah applies uh, very much so in a real way to us, even though we don't have a prophet named Zephaniah today and we don't live in the same times. We don't have kings like they did. We don't, we're not obligated to go to Jerusalem. But the same principles apply and the same changes that he wanted them to practice in life apply. So God warned Judah then. Watch what he warns Judah. And see if any of this applies to anybody anywhere today. God warned Judah then not to rely on comfort, not to rely on their wealth, not to rely on theirs or anybody else's military, political, or national strengths. 
I will remind you of what Daniel taught. God raises up individuals. God brings down individuals. God raises up nations, and God brings nations down. Even those who were his own special people, like Israel in the north at one time, and Judah in the south at one time. Even in the house where God dwelt in the city of Jerusalem, where God promised to be their God forever, that city and that temple was destroyed. And that nation was carried into captivity after hundreds of years, nearly a thousand years, a thousand years relying on the wrong stuff didn't allow them to keep going. Don't rely on comfort. Don't rely on wealth. Don't rely on anything that's external. They were not to have any gods of any kind other than Jehovah God. But they had gods of all kinds, all over, in addition to Jehovah God. And he calls them on it. Every prophet called them on it. Every prophet took them to task. They were not to be loyal. They were not to pledge allegiance to any of those false gods other than Jehovah God. And they did it repeatedly, all while claiming to be God's people. God wanted Judah then, just like he wants us today, to be faithful, to serve him only, to serve him faithfully, and to live as if nothing else but mattered that attitudes and actions, both of which were totally surrendered to him. So, the final question, what do you think God wants from his people today? Nothing any different. Zephaniah is just as relevant today as it was when it was first delivered. If there is, for any reason, anything that you need to know further about this lesson, questions that you might ask of a, a spiritual nature, we encourage you to get in touch with the elders of the congregation. Uh, but uh, we will close now with a word of prayer, and then we will be dismissed. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this time that we had to read and to think about your word as it came through the prophet Zephaniah. Uh, hopefully we have a greater appreciation of who he was and what he did and how important it was to proclaim your word faithfully, and how important it was for your people, Israel, Judah, especially at this time, during the days of Josiah, uh, to listen to that message and to be convinced and convicted of it, and to be changed by it, uh, to, to live more faithfully in your sight. We hope and pray, Heavenly Father, that we will <coughs> understand that this message applies to us equally today. Help us to be faithful inside and out, in attitudes and actions as we serve you as long as we live. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.